I'm Andrew Murata, host of the Education Leadership and Beyond podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you like awesome rings? Uh, do you need a ring to replace one that you lost long ago? Or do you, like me, need a new wedding band because yours is no longer fixable? Hmm? Well, I have this cool sponsor, Boone Titanium Rings. They can be found at boonrings.com. They are made from titanium, and you can get the rings carved, engraved, inlaid, laser cut. Uh, there's special collections like the Hunter Series and Gamer Rings, the Black Zirconium. Yeah, cool stuff. They have models that have meteorite, wood, or other inlays. It's so cool. Go to boonrings.com to find out all the cool stuff that they make. And at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, the number 12, and you will get 10% off their total, and uh, you'll help out this podcast. Once again, you use the code TLLK12, and you will get 10% off the total, and you will help this podcast. Thanks so much. I love my ring, and I know you will love yours. Hey, welcome back. Today, I'm talking with Michelle B. Slater, the author of the book, Starving to Heal in Siberia, My Radical Recovery from Late-Stage Lyme Disease and How It Could Help Others. What a powerful book. What an inspiring conversation and an inspiring story. You're going to learn so much from her book. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And, and, and before you go, um, I got to ask you a question. Have you, have you been to my website? It's stephenmaletto.com. I, if you go there, uh, you know, I got all kinds of links to all my, uh, all my uh, blog articles, and I've got links to all my uh, podcasts, and, uh, and I've also got a free uh, audio class that's uh, how to help you with classroom management. Uh, just gives you some, um, it's one of the first of a few that are on their way. So just uh, some neat stuff to go take a look at. Uh, by the way, you could also leave a review for the podcast. That would be so cool. You know, you go to how you listen to us on the platform on your phone and just go in there and uh, um, how about saying some nice things? That'd be so cool. <laughs> Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Leto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Leto. Michelle Slater is a scholar of comparative literature and president of the educational nonprofit Mayapple Center for the Arts and Humanities in Connecticut. She holds a Ph.D. in French literature from Johns Hopkins University. Her long battle with and recovery from late-stage neurological Lyme disease served as a genesis for this book. Debilitated by the disease to the extent that she was no longer able to teach at her university or perform simple tasks like driving and reading, Slater spent several years pursuing every known treatment from aggressive allopathic methods to holistic remedies. When all failed to deliver recovery, she discovered Dr. Sergei Villanov's uh, dry fasting program and spent two months in Siberia under his care. She recovered completely from Lyme disease, regaining her memory and returning to researching, writing, hiking, and running. Since 2017, she has not experienced a single symptom. Today, we're going to be focused on her book, and uh, it's called Starving to Heal in Siberia, My Radical Recovery from Late-Stage Lyme Disease and How It Could Help Others. Michelle, thanks for joining me today. Great to have you on the show, and say hi to everyone. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. Well, glad to have you here, and... Uh, 
kudos. This is uh, you've come a long way, and uh, and when someone reads your your words in your book, they they really understand how far. Um, and uh, but before we get into your book, and wants to you know to remind the listeners again, it's called "Starving to Heal in Siberia: My Radical Recovery from Late Stage Lyme Disease and How It Could Help Others." Could you explain the type of focus that you needed to complete your PhD at Johns Hopkins University? Because that's that's not a little university. So. <laughs> Yes, Stephen, I needed razor sharp focus. I needed to be able to engage every day, all day uh, in high level thinking. I had to have a lot of discipline. Um, I had to come up with original ideas. It required a lot of time, large blocks of time. It was my dedication um, to read, to research, to think, to write, to edit. And to, you know, attend all sorts of lectures with, you know, the top thinkers around around the world. And and, you know, to write a, a doctoral dissertation is no small thing. And so it required razor sharp focus and a lot of discipline. So I was up at 445 a.m. every day at my desk by five. And I would, you know, I would I would work through the day. So it was it was a it's a cliche, but it was a Herculean effort. I can only imagine. And, you know, just as a, a note, um, I've written and published a dissertation and uh, although not about language, mine's history based. <laughs> um, but uh, so I understand all that goes into it and the research and the focus and stuff like this. And then the, the focus that you have on language and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, I can, you know, to have something like Lyme disease with everything that you were able to do and then, after reading your book, it obviously not not able to <laughs> not. Absolutely, it was it was shocking to me that there were times that someone would ask me what I had written my dissertation on, and I couldn't even answer. I couldn't even I couldn't even come up with a sentence on what I had written my dissertation on. It was it was I was so dismayed to say the least. I can only imagine. It, you know, early in your book, you shared the following: over the years, Lyme had sucked the marrow out of me. Tell everybody what you're talking about. Well, I think a lot of readers would know that it was a play on Thoreau's famous quote from Walden Pond, in which he writes that he wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. And earlier, he writes that he wished to live deliberately. And I had always tried to do so. And, you know, Thoreau had resonated me with me from the time I was a young teenager. And that was my approach to life. And when it came to my battle with Lyme disease, I was losing to the extent that I felt that Lyme had sucked the life out of me and the marrow out of me. Gotcha. And I appreciate you sharing that because that really says a lot, especially when they understand what the, the shifting of, of your meaning and what, what the focus is there. The, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, you share in, in your book, Starving to Heal in Siberia, um, you, you share your journey of ridding yourself of this de- debilitating disease. I mean, what thought did you have that made you pursue to getting the book done and published? I mean, there, after you'd gone through all this stuff and you're having the feeling that, hey, hey I am coming out of this. This is, uh, this is amazing. Somewhere, you know, the light bulb had to go off and say, I need to put some of this in writing. Can you talk about that? 
It was almost immediate, Stephen. As soon as I realized that I was well in every respect and that I even got my mind back and my memory back, and I didn't I didn't know that you could do that once you had lost those things, I felt that I had a moral obligation to write the book. And, you know, before I had gotten sick with Lyme, I was I was in the midst of finishing an academic book and I was really eager to get back to finishing that when I became well, but I even put that on hold because it was so important to me. If I could help even one person with this book, I wanted to be able to do that before I did anything else. So it was, it was deeply important to me to write the book and get it out into the world as soon as possible, because I thought if this helped me, then if I could help other people who were in such despair, that has to be my priority. That's awesome. Cause I, I just as a note, I, I just, I, I can't imagine so as you're really, really realizing that you're on the road to recovery, and then uh, because of your previous world, all the all the stuff that you're doing with researching and uh, writing, and uh, um, the world that you were in of uh, working with, uh, you know, on a whole different paced um, type of world uh, that you had, had become part of with the, dealing with the Lyme disease, um, I, it just I, I can I just wonder what that moment was like when you went and okay. I can do this now. I'm. I can focus on it. I mean, it, well, it, 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 it's. You know, it's. There's disbelief. There's euphoria. There's gratitude. Um, I still experience gratitude every single day. I wait. I run every day, and I. I play my musical instruments. I write. I'm. I'm finishing up an academic manuscript right now. Um, I. I. I wake up every single day grateful. It does not get old. That's so awesome. I can I can only imagine. So that so let's back up just a minute. I mean, because I've gotten to that part. I've almost skipped to the end of the book. <laughs> but uh, what I'd like to do is come forward and could you tell our listeners? Let's talk a little bit about what Lyme disease is. Yes, that is the question. Since that is what plagued me and so many people throughout the world now. So according to the CDC. Lyme disease is a vector-borne disease, the most common one in the U.S., and it's caused by the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi, named after the researcher who discovered it. And it's transmitted to humans through the bite of infected black-legged ticks. And it's, it's notoriously difficult to discover and even diagnose because it can mimic other symptoms. It's very hard to detect these microscopic ticks. And you sometimes get a bullseye rash, the erythema migrans, but I didn't, I didn't get that. And I know me, many people with chronic Lyme who never did. It can cause uh, fever, headache, um, fatigue, joint pain, um, but many people see this as being related to something else or even something um, like the flu. And so uh, it, it frequently goes undetected. It's great if you can discover the tick embedded in you, but sometimes you don't. And if it's left untreated, then it can become chronic and it's very difficult to eradicate. But if you can treat it with antibiotics early on, then it's a win-win frequently. That's that's awesome. You know, one of the things that uh, you just mentioned to me that I was going to ask you about, because as a kid, I grew up in uh, I mean, kind of a woodsy area of central Florida and uh, um, was constantly out there with dogs and motorcycles and running around through the woods and all kinds of stuff. And from time to time, I'd deal with ticks, the, the type of ticks that we had. And 
Um, you could see them, especially as they proceeded to, uh, you know, gorge themselves on your blood. And uh, then suddenly they come there. And um, and so you answered one of my questions, which is, so it, it's possible to may possibly see this thing eventually, or or is it really that difficult to even find the thing? I mean, you don't even know that's on you. It's very difficult to find them. They they like to seek out um, hidden areas in, in the in the body. At one point, um, I had found one burrowing itself in the back of my shoulder, and I I just I was I think I was taking a shower, and I oh I jumped out of the shower screaming, um, but I I saved that tick. I took it to the doctor and. Um, and got tested for Lyme, and they said I didn't have Lyme. Um, but so I can't, I can't trace mine back to a particular tick. And but I know that I, I was bitten by a tick. I eventually was diagnosed with with Lyme disease. But you know, I'm romping around. I'm a big hiker. I've been, you know, hiking in um, the the forests of the Berkshires and Vermont um, most of my life. So I had come across. Um, these from time to time. And yeah, sometimes you see them and sometimes you don't. That's wild. I know that's what, because uh, um, that's when I first heard about it, but these are the wrong type of ticks, I guess, that uh, right. I was dealing mm-hmm. with as a yeah. kid and teenager. And and uh, people would say, no, that's not the right thing. You're just worried, you know, I, well, it wasn't me. It was my mom. She's like, oh, you're going to, you know, you run through the woods like that. And uh, anyway, um, but so that's, that's what I was curious about is, uh, um, which, you know, so one of the things that like you've alluded to now is that you, you know, one of your favorite pastimes, I guess, or, you know, something that you like to do to pass the time is to go hiking and such. So as, as you've recovered, have you slowed down doing that or have you gotten back to doing that too? I I was, I was rather, I was rather apprehensive about about hiking at first and I, I looked ridiculous. I wore the classic tick attire, which is to, you know, pull your hiking socks up over your trousers and wear long sleeves. And I would be brutally hot and miserable. And I decided, you know, I'm just going to wear shorts and I'll see them. I check myself. I'm vigilant about checking. I now I do a lot of hiking now in the Swiss and French Alps. And so I don't really have to worry about ticks there. And so, no, I haven't, I've not let up on the hiking. It's a, it's a great passion of mine and it always has been, but, and I will say to all of your listeners to be vigilant about checking. And I always throw my, my hiking clothes immediately into the wash. And then I'm, I'm vigilant about checking. And I think that that is a a primary way to avoid these little vampires. Awesome advice. Awesome. The, uh, um, and what's, cool with you constantly doing that and going back to and um by the way i can only imagine what it was like and you kind of i don't know if you sat yourself down and said look i can do this we i just get rid of it. <laughs> let's not look this way when we go out into the woods or whatever um because oh my gosh i can only imagine how hot you get just <laughs> oh yeah that. yes and um i it is good to avoid tall grasses you know stay in the center of the hiking trail all of that so you know i do follow that advice Absolutely. Gotcha. So, so how'd you find out about Dr. Villanov? Well, I was many years into pursuing treatments. I tried to research every treatment I could when my antibiotics, you know, weren't working and all of my um, alternative treatments weren't working. And I was, I was, I was 
I, I still kept looking for a, a way out of this. And I was, I was just on a forum for, for patients. And I saw this um, reference to him and, and a quote, and it sounded sort of mythological to me. It, it said that dry fasting can incinerate diseased cells and tissues. And I thought, well, that's what I need to do. And I was so, I was so intrigued that I, I tried Googling him. I, I, it was, I had a bear of a time finding him because his website was only in Russian. But I did eventually find him, make contact, and was able to, um, you know, get someone to help me to get to his clinic in the mountains of Siberia. The good news now is that he runs clinics outside of Russia in places like Montenegro and Turkey, places that are easy um, access with, you know, visa status and, um, you know, COVID vaccinations and, you know, a whole list of things. So no one has to go back to the mountains of Siberia. I know a lot of American patients have been going to see him now, but that's, that's originally how I found him. Gotcha. I appreciate you explaining that. Cause that, that it's kind of a, it, it's a neat story. Um, that happens, but at the same time, it's like, how in the world did you find this person? And not only that, but also because of the state that you were in at the time of, um, I would not call it well-being. I would, um, you know, this, this uh, state of, uh, you know, not f- probably feeling very much like trying to do the type of research that you probably needed to. No, I couldn't. There was it was absolutely out of the question. I could barely even hold my phone at this point. I was in my bed um, in the middle of the day where I frequently was, um, and and I and once I did find him, I I, I just I, I was too tired to even do anything about it and promptly fell asleep and and woke up and tried it again. But no, I was so compromised. There was, there was no high level thinking that my research skills were, had come practically to a full stop, but I was still trying. Gotcha. So, uh, so you mentioned something that I was going to ask you about. Um, So can you go into what Dr. Villanov introduces you to is dry fasting. Can you talk about what that is and what it entails? I absolutely can. And it, it, it does sound alarming to, I think, most Western listeners until they, they really understand the science behind it. And uh, so dry fasting is an absolute form of fasting. It's a it's a medical fast and it it involves really uh, the science of radical autophagy that scientists have been working on, you know, the um, self eating um, and, you know, with, with lab animals and yeast cells um, that Osumi, Yoshinori Osumi won the Nobel Prize for in 2016, his work on autophagy with yeast cells. And so what an absolute dry fast is, is being abstemious from both food and water and even all substances, no toothbrushing, no rinsing the mouth. And no lotions, creams, lip balms, no showers. Um, and he he trains the body. You know, he goes through a very specific protocol. He puts the typical patient through about three months of protocol, eliminating all sorts of things um, and doing cleansing procedures before arriving at the dry fast. But it is refraining from eating and drinking for periods of time until he works you up to what he considers to be the medical fast that can eliminate diseases. And that is nine days and nine nights without any contact 
with water. It's not, oh, I think I'll have a sip here because I'm thirsty. It must be absolutely nothing, consecutive days and nights so that the body can go into this very deep process of autophagy. And if you interrupt it, then, you know, the organs start to, you know, take on their normal functions again and, and the process stops. So, so that's really what dry fasting is. And what was miraculous to me is that as the days went by, so he put me on a one day, a three day, a seven day, and then on the nine day, what was so interesting to me, my, I felt that my body was so full of this cellular debris from the Lyme and the various autoimmune disorders and candida that I had um, accumulated along the way with the Lyme. I was feeling better and better, Stephen, as the days went by on the dry fast, which felt absolutely miraculous to me as the, as my body started to clear as the days went by instead of feeling enervated i was really i was really feeling better already and so that's that's what worked that's awesome i you know and i gotta i gotta i gotta ask this because you know one of the things that i so with having a phd in french literature do you speak other languages um i do yes i also speak some german i've studied I've, I yes, I've studied a variety of languages. I, I would have guessed that you studied more than the French to go with it. A lot of times uh, that happens. So, but do you speak Russian? And did you have to speak Russian when you first made this contact and so forth? Did you have to make a contact in that world? I mean, how to how to do that? <laughs> I, I do speak elementary. I do speak elementary Russian. Um, I um, my Russian friends think I speak Russian. They say better than any American, but I know that's not true. I know that's not true. They're just being kind. Um, I, so I was able to, I was able to get by, but he does not speak English. He had a couple of people on site. One, he had an assistant who spoke French, but his French was broken. So we would try French and English and whatever language worked, we would go with. And his daughter is a nurse for him and she speaks some English. And he had a couple of patients who had lived in London for a long time and were Russian. So we used everyone. Now he has a professional translator, but at the time he did not. And I was his very first American patient and we employed Google Translate. We, we, we pulled out all the stops that we could to make this work. And so I just want to point out that I kind of figured that you, you spoke or at least knew of other languages with the type of degrees that you have to be where you are. But um, just another barrier, I would think that as you're trying you're dealing with something that's causing you not to want to live and not to want to do. Um, and then you have another barrier, which would be languages and then trying, and then what uh, irony of it all is that you have this other kind of like path, these different pathways you have to follow to get to the point that he's solved now. And I just thought, absolutely. All of that is true. I was so determined. I didn't allow anything to frustrate me at that point. I was all in, I felt that I had nothing to lose. I did, I did type my messages on, we all used WhatsApp. I did type my messages into Google Translate just to make sure that I was, but you know, Google Translate can come out sounding very funny. So dry fasting came out as I think dry cleaning. So there nice. were things, mishaps along the way that we've figured out. Um, 
you know, he wanted me to take activated charcoal that came out as coal. And I figured that he didn't want me to take coal. So <laughs> it was amusing in some way. I treated it as a language game, as a puzzle. Um, I had enough help around me that even if I wasn't at my full cognitive powers, I, I had enough help around me that it worked. That, that's awesome. Because I, I just think it's interesting because not only do you, it's just kind of like, one thing after another that you're having to deal with. And, and so I only just, as you're going, Oh my God. What's it? And then, and that's before you know that it's going to work or not. And that's right. Stephen, you're absolutely right. That this, this is an excellent point you're making that this, yes, this was yet another barrier, but I, I refused to be dissuaded by anything at that point. I just thought I have to give this my full attention. And so I just, I'm treated that as a minor detail. Gotcha. You know, one of the things that you write about is that while you're dealing with the Lyme disease, I mean, you, you write that he really didn't want to live. He wanted to take your life at, at some point. Um, could you share why this um, is and what you focused on doing to kind of put that, you know, whatever you did to compartmentalize it, put it away or try and get beyond that? I mean, well, well, yes, that is it. That is obviously a, you know, a sensitive topic with people who have the late stage neurological Lyme, and that there there was a recent study, and that there are about twelve hundred suicides a year, um, with patients who have chronic Lyme disease, and you know, I never wanted to stop living, I I wanted, but I wanted to live the kind of life that I had always lived, you know, writing, teaching, running, skiing, hiking, giving love and light to my friends and family. And I felt like I had no light to give. I had nothing to offer. You know, I was a teacher. I had the heart of a teacher, but I, I couldn't give anything to anyone at that time. And I felt that I was really draining my loved ones and I couldn't seem to get out of bed. I couldn't even write or even hold my phone to send messages. It hurt terribly to send text messages because the joints in my hands were in so much pain um, that I, and, and I would, there was a chronic fatigue component that came along with the late stage Lyme. And that happens for many patients. And I thought, okay, if I just spend another couple of days in bed, I'll feel better. And, and I'll be able to take up some of my duties. And then by the end of it, it was like I had spent months mostly in bed with absolutely no improvement. And that's when I thought, okay, I can, I'm not giving anything to anyone. Um, I'm a drain. And if it's not going to get better, and doctors kept saying you have to acclimate to this new normal, I thought, okay, I, I, I don't think I can, I don't think this body is inhabitable anymore. So I so I did make um, plans, and I, I I like to be careful not to really say what they were um, for anybody who's considering this, because I absolutely would want anyone to um, reach out for help and exhaust all medical sources. Um, but I was planning on committing assisted suicide because I just didn't think my body was inhabitable. And I, I'm sorry to ask the question. I just I think. Uh... You give hope to those who might be at that level of whatever they're dealing with, and uh, that uh, it's more than just hope. It's, uh, I mean, the next part where I'm going is what happened after this treatment. So, 
but uh, but I appreciate you talking about that because that's that's rough because you know to have everything taken away from you that you're used to doing, or at least to feel that way, um, cannot be an encouraging sort of a way to live. No, life. absolutely not. I, I was definitely in despair, and and again, as you as you just um, alluded, it's it, that's part of the reason why I wrote the book, I want to be able to give hope to people who are in despair. And I've received countless responses from readers um, saying that I have given them hope and they are going to try the dry fasting. And, and that's, that's the reward for writing this book. That's exactly what I wanted. Those are the readers that I wanted to find. So Michelle, you share in your book that uh, this statement, I've not even had one line symptoms since I returned home from Siberia in the fall of 2017, nor have I taken a single pill or supplement of any kind. Could you talk about the impact of not having to deal with the disease returning? That is, that is remarkable um, that it has, that I have lived uh, five years now, five, five and a half without, without any symptoms and without, and so Dr. Filanoff is also really opposed to taking supplements on a daily basis and vitamins. And so I, I, I'm not a medical doctor. I have no advice for anyone in this regard, but that is, that, that is his protocol for me. He thinks it puts a burden on the liver and, um, that my, my, my particular diet is clean enough that I don't, I don't need to add anything to it. So for me, I used to take, it seemed like thousands of well i did take thousands of of pills supplements etc so to not have to take any of that stephen that alone to clear my countertops of all of these bottles is that alone was was a great great gift but to to realize that you know my joint pain was gone that i didn't need to take a nap i didn't need to lie down during the day you know i went around living in these flannel pajama pants because i would I could only stay up for a certain period of time and then I would have to lie down. The fact that I could like wear real clothes all day long, um, that alone, just these tiny things were, were, were a marvel to me and to, you know, that my memory came back, that I could tell you what I wrote my dissertation on, that, you know, um, I could read things and remember them. It was, I, I mean, I was, I was, I was skipping around. I mean, people, I just flashed smiles at everyone I encountered. I was, I was full of joy. <laughs> so awesome. I, I just, you, you can only imagine what the, the feeling would be that you're, you're different than what you've been for those years dealing with the, um, the destructiveness of, uh, of the disease and, uh, Kudos and congratulations and and uh, awesome book that you've written and it does give people hope that are dealing with um, these types of situations and such because they can fo- follow your journey and I was just wondering before we close if uh, Michelle if you could uh, if someone wanted to learn more where would you send them what would you want them to do I would I would send them to my book Starving to Heal in Siberia because I include the protocol that I worked um, on with Dr. Filonov. And I would say that there is a lot of spurious literature out there on um, dry fasting and to be very careful about what is on the internet. Dr. Filonov is an MD and he's been treating patients for 30 years. So he's he's really 
the person to go to. Um, he has a website, filonov.net, as well. Um, I do as well, michelleslater.com. And so I would, I would absolutely start there. That is awesome. And I will put that information in the show notes so it's easy for listeners to, to find that, to, to follow up on that. And, and so, Michelle, before we finish up, I've got two questions I like to ask my guests. And I like to ask you this first one, which with you is really poignant, which is uh, how do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? I mean, you, you had every opportunity to quit. You know, I, I loved, I, I loved life. I, I, I wanted to, I did not want to give up. Um, I also have to say that I had, I had the best dad in the world that, um, he, he was, I was his great love. And that was also another thing, just knowing that my dad's love was enough reason for me to, um, to, to want to try everything possible. (laughs) That's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, Last question for you. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Oh, Stephen, I have a long list of teachers who've made a great impact on my life. And the beauty is that I am still very close with all of them. So I regularly tell them thank you. Um, from my high school French teacher at boarding school, Monsieur M, um, to my all the way up to my, my master's advisor, Donald Pease at Dartmouth, and um, Stephen Nichols at Johns Hopkins, um, I would say the three of them were were my great inspirations. And they each were willing to patiently work with me to improve my writing, my editing, my research skills. And they, they championed me. And um, they also treated me like a family member. And so I'm deeply grateful to to all of them and, and always will be and, and aspire to be that kind of teacher um, myself. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Michelle, so awesome talking with you today. And uh, you, I can't thank you enough for sharing your inspiring story, Starving to Heal in Siberia, my radical recovery from late stage Lyme disease and how it could help others. It is such an inspiration and it's such a powerful book. And uh, you know, there's a lot that you're going to be helping just from as they start looking and reading and following what uh, you know, your journey and how it can help them. So um, I'm wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much, Stephen. I really enjoyed speaking with you as well. Thank you for having me. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.